Isaiah chapter 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant for the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Seen. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hands to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust off your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord and those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. 
I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their coloring. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is perfect. If you've read it, you've felt before the pace picking up as Ender prepares for his final test in command school. Or as Harry, Ron, and Hermione get past the trap door. Or as Aang prepares to defeat Ozai. You felt it because great stories carry you along, building momentum as they move toward the climax. This morning's passage begins the second of Isaiah's four servant songs, the climax of Isaiah's book and the building climax of redemption history. These songs reveal more than had ever come before about how God would save his people. If you were going to free a people from bondage and deliver them from the greatest imaginable enemy, how would you do it? With military might? With cultural imperialism? I bet you wouldn't do it with what one author calls God's improbable gospel strategy. Hidden until the time is right, He emerges in history to conquer, not by military might or cultural imperialism, but by force of truth, by the servant, Jesus. In Genesis 3.15, speaking to the serpent, God made the first gospel promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Then, as Israel's history unfolded through the times of the patriarchs and the prophets, we understand more about what to expect concerning Israel's Messiah. But make no mistake, it would be Israel's Messiah. That's who this servant is. And that's why the details in Isaiah's second service song, servant song provide an unexpected twist. The servant, Israel's savior, is speaking to us. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. In scripture, those who are far off are you and I. It's the nations, the Gentiles. To the Ephesian Gentiles, Paul wrote, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The servant addresses those who are far off. And he addresses them from two sources of authority. The first, many do not know and will not accept until the last day that this servant is their creator and their judge. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And as Peter taught, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. He speaks from authority because the servant is the one who will judge those who ultimately resist his grace. He's the one who will give them the wages that their sin is due. Why does he address the nations? Because he is their maker. And on the day of his coming, he will be their judge. But we see there's another source of his authority, another reason that he's talking to us. And if they will receive rather than resist his grace, he will save them. He's a warrior, not only in judgment, but also in salvation, freeing people from bondage. He's come to be a light in the darkness. From a God like we have, how could we expect anything less? Verse 6, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It wasn't enough for the goodness of God. It wasn't enough for the greatness of God to just save Israel. And so he would send a light into the darkness. His salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. And he says that what this servant is doing is what Israel had failed to do. They were supposed to be the light for the nations. But far from drawing others to faith in God, they wandered. And now they needed the Savior to gather them to himself. God's laboring through Israel, humanly speaking, has been in vain. That's verse 4. An interesting insight into, into Jesus feeling as though God's work through Israel was for naught. But God the Father intended before all time that he would raise up a new Israel, this servant. To do the work of Psalm 67. Psalm 67 where Israel praises God. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. But you've been reading along with me in Isaiah. Instead of making his way known on the earth, the northern kingdom was destroyed in their unbelief and Judah is taken into exile in Babylon. If the servant is to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, he's going to have to start by saving his own wayward, rebellious people. The good news is this is no surprise to God. This is not plan B. One teacher writes, the Old Testament has obsolescence built into it. 
It points beyond itself, both because of human failure and also because even at their best, the figures moving through the pages of the Old Testament were always meant to prepare for something greater. God will complete his mission to save his people. God will free Judah from Babylon. God will rebuild Jerusalem. He will send his servant there and he will complete his mission to save the Gentiles through the church of his son. It's not the emergence of the Babylonian empire that moves us toward this climax. Nor is it the powerful leader Cyrus Christ's strategy, as another pastor put it, is not to overwhelm the arrogance of this world with even more formidable arrogance. It's to empty himself and take the form of a servant. Chapters 51 and 52 are about the servant's relationship to Egypt. Chapter 50 is about his relationship to God the Father. But first... In this morning's passage, the servant speaks to the nations. Now, that doesn't mean that this section was irrelevant to the Jews in captivity. That was Isaiah's original audience, and God has all these audiences in mind. The return of Judah from captivity under Cyrus was always pointing to the freedom that all of God's people would find in Christ. God's people are brought near from far off in Babylon to Jerusalem to be witnesses to the world. And that foreshadows the church age where people throughout the world are brought near in in God's church as a witness to the world. The glory of Jerusalem as it is rebuilt from the ruins of a city and a people points to the glorious triumph of the church which comes apart from any human expectation. One work of God points to the other because God so loved the world. The message of truth about what God has done is needed by all people in all times and in all places. And that message of truth can always be received in faith. Whosoever believes. And that message of truth always works, should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the message. It's in Isaiah's language, but look in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I've answered you. In In a day of salvation, I've helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. And verse 12, behold, these shall come from afar. It's all the same message. The servant comes to proclaim liberty to the captives. Like Moses, who led his people out of captivity in Egypt. Like Cyrus, God's servant, who would lead his people back to Jerusalem. And this, even though the covenant with Moses had been broken. What's your response when someone breaks a promise to you? Do you lash out in anger? Do you seek a pound of flesh in return? Stew silently? What does God do when his people fail to keep his covenant? Isaiah says he becomes a covenant 
for them. Verse 8, and give you as a covenant to the people. Jesus becomes in the flesh God's covenant for us. He's the covenant maker, and on our behalf, he's the covenant keeper. What did Jesus say in the upper room? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Though Judah rebelled in unbelief, God will preserve a remnant. He will rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and fulfill his promises concerning the Messiah. Even covenant-breaking unbelief will not discourage God from saving the people that he purposed from all eternity to save. And it's not just Israelites. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. It's a reasonable response. God offers all people security and satisfaction in him. Everything we need can be found in him. But is that how we respond? No. Because it's not what our circumstances say. When we endure the trials of life in a sin-stained world, we don't sing for joy or break forth into singing, do we? It's much more like verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Verses 8 through 14 share many facets of human suffering from our cursed condition. It talks about desolation, how we're left empty and wanting and without hope. We're prisoners weighed down by the chains of our captivity. We're in darkness, unable to see a reason why or a way forward. We're afflicted by suffering. We feel forgotten and insignificant. We feel abandoned, alone, and helpless. These verses contain the elements of life in this world. Maladies that touch every area of life, our marriages and families, our friendships and hobbies, our work and our purpose. Good luck convincing the Judeans in exile that this isn't true. Good luck trying to convince anyone that this isn't true. But notice, God doesn't say it isn't true. That kind of playing pretend could not be taken seriously. Instead, he says something remarkable. Verse 10, They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. If you look carefully at that passage, each of the afflictions in the text has a corresponding deliverance from the servant. The desolate people will be given a heritage. The prisoners called out from their chains. Food and drink for those who hunger and thirst Comfort and compassion for those who feel forgotten. It goes a step beyond that, actually, and, and describes exaltation. Like Judah, we look at our circumstances and we think, God has forsaken me. God looks at the same circumstances 
and has pity on us and sends the servant to save us. Whichever of those trials from the list is your trial right now, the shepherd offers relief. His covenant promises our grace for those trials, but we resist. And then from that resistance, from the mess of our own making, we insist that God has abandoned us. And what does God do in response? He takes our affliction and gives us favor we do not deserve. The last section of the text, starting in verse 15, explains why we feel forsaken in the first place. We put the blame on God. You have abandoned us. You have forgotten us. You have turned on us. But that's not what happened, is it? Chapter 50, thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? Isaiah's original audience understood how covenants worked. Covenants with respect to marriage and to debt. Marriage is a frequent analogy in scripture for God's relationship to his people. He views his union with us in those covenantal terms, obligations that go both ways, and consequences for unfaithfulness, just as in earthly marriages. In Deuteronomy 24, no-fault divorce is strictly prohibited. When there are legitimate justifications for divorce, a certificate will be produced. But in the case of a blameless spouse, the covenant is not to be broken. And so here God says to his people, show me your certificate. Since you claim to be blameless in this covenantal breakdown, surely you have a certificate that proves it. The second illustration is about covenants surrounding debt. Kids, in Isaiah's time, when you were a parent who couldn't pay off your debts, you might have to give your children up as payment for the debt. So perhaps that's what God did to his children. Perhaps that's why God's children feel abandoned, is he gave them over to satisfy a debt. And God challenges Judah to identify the debtor. If that's true, to whom were you sold? He's telling them to put up or shut up. Prove their blamelessness before the covenant or else realize that God is not the unfaithful one here. They're right. The covenant was broken. They were divorced. They were sold. But another pastor summarizes it well. Judah did not go into exile because of God's weakness, but because of their own sinfulness. They were complaining that they felt abandoned, but they felt abandoned because they had rejected God's grace. Now, it's not always the case. But when we blame God, it is always a reasonable question to ask. Do we feel abandoned by God because of God or because of us? It's that context that makes the servant's message to the Gentiles even more remarkable. God's people had gone astray, but he would still save them and bless them so that in turn they could bring that blessing to the nations. 
was a beautiful message of assurance. Chapter 49, verses 15 to 26. It's this extended assurance, this promise to you that God will never forget his people. He compares himself to a mother who loves and comforts her children. There's a beautiful image in verse 16 of God putting out his hands before us so that we can see our names engraved on his body. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while with God he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. He also compares himself to a warrior who frees his people from the oppressor. Do you know that the servant is mighty? He's strong to save. He's able to deliver his people from bondage. And through the salvation of his people, he brings salvation to those who are far off, to us, the church. The necessity of the church is found in the failure of Israel. God's people then, Judah, failed to be a light to the nations. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. But Israel was always content to compartmentalize God. To give God what they determined was enough of themselves. Can you relate? It's the hard question of the Christian life. What is our response to the servant? Even the fact that Christ is a servant makes it hard. Consider this. The servanthood of Christ can make it easy for us to dismiss him. Treating him as an optional add-on, enhancing our lifestyle, rather than as the Lord of all. Christ's own humility is something we take advantage of. That he comes to us in weakness allows us to dismiss him as inconsequential. That's what Judah did. Is that what we, the church, will do? Or will we individually take hold of the power of God by glorifying him in the world? How? Just demonstrate that he has the power to change a human life. You don't have to be perfect. You can't be. You don't have to be some master, eloquent evangelist. But can you demonstrate that God has the power to change a human life? Can you demonstrate forgiveness in a world that will not forgive? Can you demonstrate humility and obedience in a world that says, no one tells me what to do? Can you demonstrate love for neighbor in a world that prioritizes love of self? The truth is you can. We can as a church. We, we corporately can witness to the world the fullness of the life we have in God. God is faithful calling his people to himself and using those that he's called to bring more and more light into the darkness and more and more faith 
more and more to faith and life in him. It's not about what you do. You don't have to draw anyone to yourself. It's about what you are. It's about being what he by grace has made you to be. Because through that, he will draw people to himself.